This morning, I want to talk about something, as you can see here, that I feel like there's a lot of uh, confusion, maybe, around that word, judgment. Because in the Bible, there are various ways that that word judgment is used. And in some cases, it's something that's going to happen. And in some cases, it's something that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> and so which is it? How can it be one and, and the other at the same time? And so that's what I want to look at. Lots of scripture this morning. I want the Bible to speak, not me, all right? And so, depending on what you want the Bible to say, you could read through it, and you could find verses to defend the stance that you have. For instance, if you want to stand on the street corner and unleash condemnation on passers-by, you could read a verse like this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. That's true. That's in your Bible, and I believe that to be true. But maybe, maybe you're like, oh, Old Testament, that's not me. I like the New Testament. That's where all the love is. So maybe then you would choose something like this, Matthew chapter 12, 36. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Okay, that's not what I was going for. <laughs> now, there's two verses. There's, there's plenty more. I'll show you more later on. There's also verses that teach against judgment. And so if you're standing out on the street corner with your repent or burn sign, someone might walk up to you and quote verses like Luke chapter 6, 37, or Matthew chapter 1, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which both basically say, do not judge and you won't be judged. What? But if we don't tell them, how will they know they need to repent? Surely we need to judge each other in order to do that, don't we? Is telling someone they need to repent judgment? I could go on and on and on with so many questions, but rather than just pile on questions, we gotta, we got to start somewhere. So let me pray, and then we'll begin. Dear Lord, I want to make sure that you are speaking and not me. Use me this morning to accomplish your will. Take what I've prepared and, and use it as you see fit. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. Let's set, let's set some groundwork here. When Jesus was explaining things and preparing his disciples for what life would be like after he died, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended to heaven, he's preparing them for all of that. And, and he was questioned, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And the way Jesus responded, taught them, and I believe shows us that the way someone lives their life shows you whether they believe or not in God, whether they love God or not. You can see that in the way someone lives their life. And so Jesus answered, uh, chapter, John chapter 14, 23 and 24, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words the word that you hear is not mine, but from the Father who sent me. So someone who loves God will do what his word says. In other words, there should be outward, physical examples that align with our beliefs. 
The way we live should match what we say we believe. And it's similar to the way Jesus taught about avoiding false prophets and wolves in sheep clothing. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Then he says this, verse 19. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. That's, there, there's, there's judgment involved there. Based on their fruit, based on the way they live, if the fruit isn't matching, then you, it gets cut off and it gets put into fire. And so both of these texts teach that it's possible for us to recognize or notice when someone's fruit isn't matching what they say they believe. In verse 19, like I pointed out, there's judgment for the tree that doesn't produce good fruit. It's cut down, it's thrown into the fire. Which I believe is making an obvious connection to the false prophets saying there will be judgment for those people. So we don't like to hear this. We don't like to hear words of judgment. You probably didn't wake up this morning and go, boy, I can't wait to hear about judgment being preached to me at church. You would, you, we'd rather listen to something that makes us feel better, something that, that pumps our tires, something that like fluffs us up, something that makes us, you know, charge into this next week. But the thing is, like it or not, this isn't out of God's character. I think this is what, what's happened is we, we, we're losing track of, of this like New Testament love, Old Testament not ideas to think, oh no, bad, judgment, oh no, those are, that's Old Testament, but we're in the New Testament, hallelujah. But God has a standard and God is just. And if we don't live up to his standards, he couldn't just turn a blind eye. He couldn't just pretend it didn't happen. Well, I guess he could, he's God, but that isn't his character. He won't do that. It's not any, any different from how it would feel if you were sitting in court, you've been wronged, and you're sitting in front of a judge in, in, a, in our legal system, and you hear all this evidence presented against the obviously guilty person who's accused of the crime. Only instead of hearing a guilty verdict be read by the judge, the judge just throws the case out and everyone goes home like it didn't happen. That would upset you. You would expect the judge to be just and to do the right thing, to do what needed to happen, and to declare the accused person guilty of the crimes they committed. And anything less than, than that, if you were the one who was acute, or sorry, you were the one who was harmed, anything less than that, you would feel as though it was a mockery of the courts. You would, you know you would. <laughs> And so before Jesus came, there was a very detailed Levitical sacrificial ceremony that was needed to cleanse the effects of sin. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled that system when he died on the cross. So Paul writes to the Romans about this to try to explain things to them as well. Romans chapter 6, I'll take verses from 17 and 18 and then 22 and 23. It's not, though, it's not as though 19, 20, and 21 disprove my point. It's for the sake of time. Verse 17, 
But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from your sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Verse 22, skip ahead a bit. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification and an outcome, and the outcome, sorry, is eternal life. And then he explains, just to be clear, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, writing to the Roman church, to those who believed in, to those who followed Christ, for those who had repented of their sins, Paul is teaching them that you are free from your sin. And the outcome of that is sanctification. It's eternal life. It's, it's, it's being cleansed from, being removed from your sin to a promised eternal life. But in that, he also makes it clear he says the wages of sin is death, or the expected results for us should have been death because of the sin in our lives. So for someone who does not follow God's word and instead lives in sin or lives based on their own desires, the Bible says they will be judged justly. Look what else the Bible has to say about judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaired for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Acts 17, 31. Or sorry, 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone raising him from the dead. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14. I read this one earlier. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. That's just three verses. That's a, there's a lot about judgment that we can read, which can be confusing because we know there are verses in the Bible, like the ones I mentioned earlier, that say, do not judge and you won't be judged. How can there be all these verses about judgment and then all at the same time verses saying, don't judge? Well, hopefully while I was reading those, you noticed something. Hopefully you noticed while I was reading those verses, who was the one doing the judging? Let me tell you. In the first verse I read, the judgment seat of Christ. The second one, he, but it's talking about God, is going to judge the world. The last one, for God will bring every act to judgment. You may not like what I'm about to say because you might disagree with me somehow, but as Christians, it is never our place to play the role of judge. Never. That's capital, capital and bolded and underlined. Where do I get this from? Well, let's keep reading. James chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. James, talking to Christians, right? Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you, who is able to save and destroy. 
but you, but sorry, but who are you to judge your neighbor? That word lawgiver, it's used six times in the Old Testament, one time in the New Testament. Six times in the Old Testament refers only to God, and the same is true here as well. Only God has the right to judge. It is not your jo- it is not in your job description as a Christian to judge others. And it is definitely not your job to judge others outside of the church. Again, you might disagree with me because you would say, but how will we reach them? You are not the judge. God has not created you to go around judging everyone you meet. James tells us more specifically not to criticize each other because when we do that, we're judging one another. Anytime I judge you, anytime you judge me, we're stepping over the line. That's when we start playing God. When we start taking some of his job responsibilities and applying them in our, onto our lives. It is only God's responsibility to judge people. Now, I'm not saying, and I'm not suggesting that by obeying what Scripture says about not judging, that we're supposed to just simply forget all about what the Bible says about sin. That's why I laid out in detail what the Bible says about judgment and sin and the way that you live your life and, and all of that. I'm not saying that we're supposed to just forget all about that. But just keep that well-used phrase in mind. Anytime you point... You have three fingers pointing back at yourself. None of us are perfect. Every single person in this room, and if Pastor Don was here, him too, have sinned. Every single one of us, I, I sorry, I, I don't mean to pick on Pastor Don. <laughs> I didn't have that written down. It just came to mind. None of us are perfect. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's standard. That's the point that Jesus is making. When he ends, the, sorry, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. I'll talk about that last verse in a bit, but... I imagine as Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount to all sorts of people, I imagine that he's, he's sort of thinking of, he has the, the religious leaders of the time in mind as he's teaching about judging others. We are supposed to be working towards getting sin, otherwise known as the beam of wood, out of our own eye. We absolutely must be doing that. So we can and should judge our own acts, What should be happening is our own sin should seem worse in us than the same sin would appear in someone else's life. That doesn't happen. I know from experience. I, I wish this wasn't the case, but we all do this, right? Sin in someone else's life looks way worse than the exact same sin does in your own life. Flip that around. It's for this exact reason that Christians are quickly labeled as hypocrites. It's because we love pointing out the sins in others 
Well, we conveniently ignore the sins in our own lives. And then that, that weird sort of uh, change in, in verse 6. Where the focus all of a sudden starts being about dogs and pigs and pearls. It's an odd turn from what he was saying about being hypocrites in our judgment. And, and he starts making a new point. Verse 6 is referring specifically to judging, correcting, or rebuking the sins in the lives of people who don't even claim to believe in Jesus, who don't even follow the teaching of the Bible. The fact that Jesus says this shows it's definitely not your job to judge others outside the church. We absolutely should be directing them to. We absolutely should be telling them about Christ. It should be our goal to do everything in our power to show them the love of God. Our lives should be a testimony for his compassion, mercy, and grace that a sinner like me could be redeemed and sanctified. But for us us to judge them, for us to hold them to a standard of the Bible where they don't even recognize the need of a Savior, that's when we step over the line and start playing God. Pigs don't recognize the beauty and the value of a pearl. To them, it's like you're throwing a rock at them right? If it's not food, they don't want it. And and to someone living an unclean or an unholy life, they will be judged, and we absolutely need to warn them of that. But if they already know that, rebuking someone for the sin in their life, someone who's already hardened their heart towards God, is going to have the opposite reaction you hope it would have. In your mind, as 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 you feel Um, empowered to judge them and rebuke them, hoping that they would turn their life around, the opposite is likely to happen. More likely, having an attitude like that towards them, you're going to end up pushing them farther away, doing greater harm than good. Listen, if you don't like what I just said, or you think that I'm mistaken in my approach at understanding the words that Jesus was teaching when it comes to whether or not we're supposed to judge others, maybe it would help if we look what Jesus also said about this in John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not, sorry, and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. It would be beautiful if we could stop there, but we can't. Uh, Verse 48. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Before reading this, if I asked you, since we're not supposed to judge, who is responsible for judging? You might quickly respond, Jesus. He's the one responsible. And because Jesus is God incarnate, you would technically be correct. However, while Jesus is 100% God, he was also 100% man. And the reason he first came to earth was not to judge. It was to save. We know this. You can see this in the way that Jesus lived his life. Think about the woman at the well. Meets the woman at the well. She has had multiple husbands. The the man that she is currently living with is not her husband, right? Living in sin, Jesus doesn't judge her for her sin. 
We know that because he, she didn't immediately receive the right and just punishment for the sin that she was living in. So what does Jesus do? He points her to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There will come a time when Christ returns with final, and, and when final judgment takes place. But his role when he first came is similar to ours. We do not play the role of judge. Jesus could have played the role, but only because he was also 100% God. This is what he's telling the Pharisees about his role in John 8, 15 to 16. He says to the Pharisees, you judge by human standards. I judge no one. Again, beautiful we could stop, but we can't. Verse 16, and if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. For us, it's not our role. Why? Because God knows our hearts. God knows what we're thinking. God knows our intentions. All we can do is respond to someone else's actions. Actions do tell us something. The Bible teaches us that, that you will know by the fruit. Actions do tell us something, but what we can't do is we can't take the leap from responding to someone's actions to then judging their intent. You, you can't know someone's intent. I've been married to my wife, Amanda, for almost 13 years. And although I probably know her better than most people, even I can't assume her intent. Doesn't mean I don't do it from time to time, but I shouldn't, okay? If the coffee maker was left without water in it when she was the last one who used it, I can't make that leap in judgment and assume that she did it on purpose. She did it to spite me, to make me do extra work in the morning, Right? I can't assume that, or no, sorry, I can't know that she didn't see that the water was empty and, and it unintentionally left it that way. I can't know that. God can. That's what Paul was getting at when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the first part of 5. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both, sorry, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. All right, I'm almost done. I hope by now I've made my point. We're not to judge. So I, I hate titles. Judgment to judge or not to judge. Not good. But the answer for us, not to judge. But if that's the case, how do we stop judging? What do we do? So let me give you these three quick ideas of how to stop judging others. The first one is this. Remember that you will be judged by the same standard you judge others with. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. The standards we use, if we judge others, will be used against us as well. And since we'll be, we will be judged in the same way that we judge others, that means a lot of us are in trouble. If you want to break that habit of talking bad about people, about criticizing people, about judging others, just remember that what you dish out is what you are going to get in return. Every time you're pointing at someone, there's three fingers pointing back at you. The next idea is this. Remember that you are accountable to God. Romans 14, 12, and 13 says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. You are accountable to God. He is the ultimate judge. He is the one who all of us 
all of creation will bow our knees. You and I will be accountable for every action and every word that we have ever spoken. You might not like that, but it's biblical truth. Every good word, every bad word. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37 says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. So how is God going to judge? He's going, this is, this is great. He's going to judge honestly, fairly, and truthfully. His judgment will be based on cold, hard facts. He will judge with justice. The wages of sin are death. My last idea is this. Remember, God has been merciful to you. James chapter 12, verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is merciful. He gives forgiveness where there should be condemnation. Shouldn't we act the same way? Remember that story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18? It's a parable, so don't get caught up in the details, but I'm going to give you a few details because it's interesting. Go something like this. Mega paraphrase. A man man owned 10,000 talents to his boss. And depending on what I've read, either a talent was either representative of the weight of a person in uh, in silver. So 10,000 talents of silver would be based on like this week's currency exchange, over half a billion dollars. Or I've also read that one talent was as much as 20 years wages. So the average Ontario salary multiplied by 20 and then by 10,000 is almost $11 billion. I'm not good at math, so if that's wrong, just forgive me. The point, right, this is a parable. We're not supposed to get caught up on the details. So regardless of the exact amount, the point of the parable was the debt would never, ever be able to be repaid. And yet his boss was kind enough to forgive him of that massive debt. That massive, unpayable debt that he deserved to pay every single penny back for. He's a free man. He no longer has to pay the debt. What does he do? Finds, immediately finds the person who owes him money. Now, the person who owed him money owed, owed him 100 denarii, which would be like 100 days wages. So, in Ontario, minimum wage before taxes, we're talking about $13,000. And he strangles the guy. Pay up or else! When the boss finds out, when the boss hears about the news, he goes to the man who used to owe him billions and says, who do you think you are? I forgave you a huge amount. That guy owed you such a little bit in comparison to what you were forgiven. Shouldn't you show him mercy like the mercy you received? God has shown us mercy. The wages of sin are death. But because Jesus died on the cross, our sins can be erased. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can be sanctified. We've been promised eternal life. God has shown us love. God has shown us forgiveness. 
How should we treat those who are around us? He doesn't want us throwing our weight around, judging and criticizing others. Because we can only judge by human standards. We can only judge what we can see. We, we do need to warn the world because God will be the judge. And the things we say and do, we absolutely should be directing them to and specifically telling them about Christ. It should be our goal to do everything in our power to show them the love of God. Our lives should be a testimony for his compassion, mercy, and grace that a sinner like me could be redeemed and sanctified. Let's pray.